Welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, we are recording this on Saturday, May the 13th. You're listening to this for the first time on Sunday, May 14th, and the rebroadcast will be on Monday, May the 15th. Uh, my name is Jasmine, and I'm here with my good friend, Alyssa. How's it going? Hi, Jasmine. Um, hi, everyone. It's really good to be here back again. I feel like it's been a minute. <laughs> It's been a while. It's yeah. Been a while. But yeah, we're always happy when people, you know, circle back. <laughs> and it's Taurus season, so I want to, well, happy belated birthday to you and also to my aunt, Sabrina. Taurus season. What, is, what are y'all supposed to be like again? Stubborn. I think stubborn is like the main thing because it's like a bull. Okay. I guess, but <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That's accurate. Well, we're, we're also supposed to be like very um into like comfort and like luxury, I guess. Okay. <laughs> like, I bodies, but like I mean, you know what I mean, like staying at home and enjoying your space and all of that. Okay, well, I can get into it. I feel like my aunt is like that. Like, she likes to make her home homey. Yeah. You know, we should all aspire to that. I'm still a work in progress on that front. Same. Working. Yeah. But I did want to acknowledge um, my other good friend, Sean Havrilla, who is a composer. He uh, made our new theme song, so I hope everyone enjoyed it. I think it's a nice, funky vibe. So thanks again, Sean. Hope you're listening and having a good day. I will get you a drink one of these days. I don't quite have the coin um, <laughs> to pay royalties or whatever, but you know we're, we're going to have a piece of your work at the top of every hour from now on. Um, so for this week's show, for the local news, we're going to be talking about uh, New York City passing a law that is against weight and height discrimination. Uh, for national news, what are you talking about, Alyssa? Um, I'm going to be talking about the Title 42 law that just ended last week. Okay. Um, it's, it's related to like the U.S.-Mexico border or like migration. Okay. Uh, for world news, I'll be talking about a sad story out of Kenya uh, where there um, are many victims of a death cult uh, whose bodies are being found. And we have some good news about a community garden in Queens. Uh, so I'll start off with the um, local news story. Um, so this is from... Um, so this article uh, appeared in The Hill. It was written by Julia Mueller. The title is NYC Lawmakers Approve Bill That Bans Weight Discrimination. New York City Council approved a bill Thursday to ban height and weight-based discrimination in employment, housing, and public accommodations in the state. 
The proposal, which the council passed by a 44 to 5 vote Thursday, amends the city's administrative code to add a mention of both height and weight, both perceived and actual, among a list of protected categories. It's official. The New York City Council has voted to ban weight and height discrimination in NYC, announced the nonprofit National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. The bill has an exemption for employers needing to consider height or weight in employment decisions in some cases, where permitted by law, or where the physical factors are key to performing essential requirements of a job and no alternative is available, or where the criteria are reasonably necessary for the normal operation of the business. People with different body types are not only denied jobs and promotions that they deserve, said Councilmember Sean Abro, the bill's sponsor. Their whole existence has also been denied by a society that has offered no legal remedy for this prejudice until today. Abro said during the vote that 2 million New Yorkers are impacted by size discrimination each year. He cited examples of people who reported facing the issue in their workplace, including a luxury brand specialist who was told baby weight didn't fit with the company image, and a student who was made to feel like she didn't belong when she requested an accessible desk at school. With today's vote, New York City will become the largest municipality in the country and the world with these protections, Abro said. With this bill passing today, we are going a long way towards changing the culture around weight. Only Michigan has a state-level law declaring weight a protected category, and weight-based discrimination is banned in just a small handful of other cities, such as San Francisco and Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, So yeah, like we don't normally start out the show with some good news, but I think this is a good development. I'm glad that it passed by such a like large margin. Yeah, yeah, had you heard of this? I I hadn't heard of it, but um, I mean, I think it's great. Like I, I feel like I went to a library conference like a few months or like a couple months back and uh, there were quite a few like presentations about like size discrimination, like in terms of like hiring practices and all of that. So it's really um, interesting that this, you know, like there's this law now or like there's this pro- this new protection. Because um, I feel like it's something that people don't think about a lot, like in terms of like even just kind of navigating spaces that you're in, like the way things are... Um, built like the bathrooms and things like that in spaces like I I feel like people don't think about size a lot like in terms of how people are kind of navigating that so I mean this is really good news yeah I mean I do I do remember seeing on Twitter um a while ago I think it was a few months ago people were speaking out and giving testimony like about their experiences with size discrimination in the city yeah um which was good to see, but you know, like I'm sure it's hard to talk about experience and stuff like that, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah, but I'm glad that it got to this point. I will say though, I do worry that 
the same way with that law where it's like, oh, whenever you post a job, you have to post a salary. And so yeah. a bunch of places would be like the salary is between 20K and $150,000, like something ridiculous. You know, I feel like there when it's good to have stuff like this on the books, but I, I know there's going to be a lot of creative ways people will try to like... Of course. Make it seem like, oh, yeah, we need people to be this size for X job. And it's like this bullshit. Because they, yeah, because I, I can't imagine. I mean, there are some jobs now that it, it does have like, it lists some requirements about like, phys- like, I guess like things that would affect you like physically or like you would need to have certain things physically to like lift a certain weight or whatever it is. So I can't imagine that they'll have they'll find like creative ways because people I mean, I mean, the discrimination will still be there, <laughs> even though I mean, there are these pr- protections in place. I feel like you can't if the people are really against it, they'll find ways to to inc- to kind of um, make sure they're within the law, but still um, be able to practice like the discrimination. I'm sure that will happen. Yeah, for sure. And like the one, the example you were giving about lifting and the stuff they'll put in the job description. I know a lot of disabled people, like that's what opened my eyes to that more because I never used to pay much attention to it. But they're like, you know, the reason why that's there is because they're putting it in that field to create the illusion that, well, you need this sex job requires x y and z when in reality it doesn't but it's a way to weed people out yeah and like i had a a family member who had a job for many years you know she really was good at it she loved it but she she's disabled and the company went under new management and they had they flipped it where like all the people that had already been there they had to reapply for their own jobs and they were doing just that where it's like, oh, you have to lift this and do that. And she couldn't do that. You know, it was just such a blatant way to just get rid of people who might be older or who have a disability or whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of wild though, sometimes because at, I've always looked, whenever I've seen that in job postings, I've always a lot of times like it doesn't make sense for the job as well so I've just started to think like oh is this just kind of a generic thing that is just put into all job description like people aren't actually looking through it and like seeing if it's actually relevant to the position because half the half the time when you think about what the job actually is it's like when would someone need to lift anything or like you know like what when would this be happening so why is this even yeah. in, in the job posting? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, definitely a way to weed people out. Yeah, and it, it's a shame that, you know, sometimes when you're not affected by something personally, like, it does fly under the radar. But then once you're aware of it, you really see it everywhere. Like, damn. Like, yeah. even things like, oh, like, you can't use any sick time until a certain amount of time has passed. When... Yeah okay, like, let's say if you have a condition or something where you might need to go to the doctor regularly or something, you can't miss that. That's going to be a barrier for you, you know, but people just kind of accept it like it's no big deal. 
Yeah. But I do feel, you know, I, I guess I think we went in a negative direction, but I do feel like... <laughs> <laughs> it did. But it is a positive thing. Like, it's moving in the right direction. This is what we want to see more of. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, as much as I do feel like there's a... Even though you can't legislate how people feel... um. What is that? It's that Kwame Ture uh, quote where he's like, if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. But if a white man has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. You know, where like you can't always change in hearts and minds isn't always going to work. But sometimes you just have to put something in place where people feel like, yeah. oh, there's a consequence. They have to, yeah, they have to like work within that law, whatever that is. Yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I do feel like putting once something is on that list of protected groups, even if someone is going to be like a jackass in their heart, it does help everyone if they're aware that, oh, I could get in trouble at my job for making this joke or like I should think about X, Y, and Z. Like they might still be, you know. Oblique. I mean, they'll have their yeah. I mean, which is true of like all of the protected <laughs> statuses. Like you, all, you're, you're. There's always going to be people who feel like personally are against certain things, but they, you know, like at work, they know that or like in life, these are protected. They can't do anything. Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. So you're right. Like yeah, because it is something that's kind of in writing now. Yeah, for sure. So. I hope these people are ready. They better buckle up. <laughs> and I'm sure, you know, like there's those groups that hire actors and stuff. I've seen it mostly with race and like trying to find housing where they'll send actors out who are of different races to yeah. go for the same yeah. apartment. And then if they get markedly different reactions, like then the place will get sued. Yeah. So I wonder if they'll do stuff like that, like that with this. You know, that like would be interesting, yeah, yeah, that would be good because there's no real way to if someone isn't saying it explicitly, it could always get played off. But like, if you make it kind of explicit, like, okay, these people have the exact same resume qualifications, yeah, yeah the only difference is their size, their weight, or their height, and then you see one get an interview, a second interview, and the other doesn't, like, you could make a case that something's going on. Free idea, y'all, if you're not doing it. <laughs> uh, okay, so that was good to report on, you know, there's a lot of bad stuff happening in New York, but there's some bright spots as well. Uh, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for our first musical break, this is a song by Raphael Sadiq, who is turning 57 today. Oh no, wait, he's turning 58. Say oh my God. How old do you thought he was? I didn't think he was that old. I mean, oh. this, but... I thought he would be, I thought he was like younger than that. But I mean, I guess he's had like a really long career. <laughs> wow. I, 50, <laughs> that was, I did not expect that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Wow. So <laughs> the eternally youthful Raphael Sadiq yeah. is turning, <laughs> wait, how old is he turning? Is it 57? No, we're in 2023. 
So that would be 50. He's turning 57 today. Yeah, he's not turning 58. Uh, and this is him. Say that again. I said happy birthday. Happy birthday. This is him featuring D'Angelo uh, with Be Here. We'll be right back. You should be here. You should be you should be here in the morning time when I'm making my breakfast. You should be here beneath me to feel me, to heal me. You should be here to wrap me, to trap me. And climb me, you should be here. I'm a good man, and I work hard on my night job. Let me show you what you're missing every day. You should be once I hit you, you ain't never gonna walk away. You should be well, I got more than just a big stick and some money. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Alyssa with our national news story. Okay, um, so this is, hi everyone, this is the national news story. Um, This is from Associated Press. Uh, The title of the article is, Title 42 has ended. Here's what it did and how U.S. immigration policy is changing. And it's written by Colleen Long um, and published on May 12th. And it has contributions from writers Rebecca Santana and Elliot Spagat. I hope I said that name correctly. Um, So basically... um, just to kind of summarize, the art, I won't read like every single thing, but the article um, is essentially talking about these new restrictions that the U.S. is putting into place at its southern board, border to, to stop, to try to stop migrants from crossing and instead encourage them to apply for asylum online through a new process. Um, and this is essentially coming after the end of the Um, COVID-19 restrictions on asylum that have allowed the U.S. to quickly turn back migrants at the border for the past three years. Um, So those restrictions are known as Title 42, um, and it's an emergency health authority. And it's called um, Title 42 because it is... It comes from the 1944 public health law, which allows curbs on migration in the name of protecting public health. Um, so it's a holdover, a holdover from uh, Trump's administration, and it began in March 2020. 
Um, it essentially allowed U.S. officials to turn away migrants who came to the U.S.-Mexico border on the grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19. Um, and in 20, March of 2020, the uh, CDC um, issued an or issued an order limiting migration across the southern and northern borders, saying it was necessary to reduce the spread of um, the coronavirus. Um, so before that, so before the before that emergency um, health authority, migrants could cross, ask for asylum, and be allowed into the U.S. Um, they were then screened and often released to wait out their immigration cases. So under Title 42, migrants were returned over the border and denied the right to seek asylum. Um, U.S. officials turned away migrants more than 2.8 million times. Families and children traveling alone were exempt. Um, so when President Joe Biden took office, uh, he kept Title 42 in place and then tried to end it in 2022. And then the Republicans sued and were essentially arguing that the restrictions were necessary for security, for border security. Um, so, you know, the, the, uh, because of that, the Title 42 was kept in place. Um, and then recently, um, since the kind of national COVID-19 emergencies were, or have ended, or when that was announced that it, they were ending, um, the border restrictions or these particular border restrictions were next, like to go away. Um, so as of Thursday, May 11th, I think is the date, um, 11.59 p.m. Eastern time, uh, Title 42 restrictions have been lifted. Um, and in in that in place of that, the Biden administration has put in a series of new policies. Um, so they're essentially, according to the administration, they're trying to stop people from paying um, from paying smuggling operations to make a dangerous and often deadly journey. So now there will be strict consequences. So migrants that are caught crossing the border will not allow will not be allowed to return for five years, and they can face criminal prosecution if they do. Um, let's see. Okay, so the Biden administration will essentially kind of turn away anyone who's seeking asylum who didn't first seek protection in a country that they traveled through or applied online. Um, so this is a version of the Trump administration policy that was overturned by the courts and advocacy groups sued to block the new rule minutes before it took effect. So who is allowed in um, under this new uh, I guess, like with the restrictions lifted. Um, so the U.S. has said that it will accept up to 30,000 people per month from Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Cuba, as long as they come by air, have a sponsor, and apply online first. <laughs> or I probably should, I think I said that incorrectly. So as long as they come by air or have a sponsor and apply online first. Um, the government also will allow up to 100,000 people from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras into the U.S. who have family here if they also apply online. 
Otherwise, um, border officials will deport people um, and they'll be sent back over the border to Mexico. Um, Other migrants may also be allowed in if they apply through the CBP-1 app. Um, And right now, and the CBP-1 app is, the CBP is the Customs and Border Protections. That's what the CBP stands for. That's their app. Right now, 740 people per day have been allowed in using that app. And then that is being increased to 1,000 per day. Families that are crossing the border, um, they will be subjected to curfews and the head of the household will have to wear an ankle monitor bracelet or an ankle monitoring bracelet. Um, Immigration officials will try to determine within 30 days whether a family can stay in the U.S. or be deported. And usually that process would take years. Uh, The Biden administration considered detaining families until they cleared initial asylum screenings, but instead opted for curfews. And the curfews will run from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. and begin soon in places like Baltimore, Chicago, New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. Families who do not appear for their screening interviews will be picked up by immigration authorities and deported. Um, The article also had like uh, just some kind of information about overcrowding in um, the border patrol stations that are meant to house migrants temporarily. Um, So it just kind of mentions that uh, because of overcrowding, agents have been releasing migrants. Uh, with instructions to appear at an immigration office within 60 days or face deportation. Uh, And they're essentially told to begin releases in any area where the facilities were at 125% or the average time in, in the facility exceeded 60 hours. Um, And then it's kind of like towards the end, uh, um, uh, the article mentions Um, some plans to open migration hubs. Um, So the U.S. plans to open 100 or 100 regional migration hubs across the Western Hemisphere where people can seek placement in other countries, including Canada and Spain. Um, There will also be hubs in Colombia and Guatemala, but it's not clear where the others will be or when they will be up and running. Um, but yeah, that's essentially the article or a summary of um, the article. Um, I like the the part about having people or you have to sign up online, I thought was, I feel like that's just going to create more. I mean, I guess that's the point, like create more barriers for people because it's an app. Like you essentially, you have to download an app and then sign, like, I guess, apply through the app. And that's kind of the only way you'll be allowed in, I guess, if you have proof that you've gone through that process. But I feel like that's going to be kind of difficult or it depends on, I mean, like, would you have access to the internet? Do you have access to that app or whatever it is? Yeah, people in this country with all the resources that are here, there's tons of people in the U.S. who couldn't do that. Yeah. 
you know, let alone if you're in this type of a situation, it's like, I think very unlikely that you would be able to do all of that or not that everyone would be unable, but I'm sure lots of people that's unrealistic. I had heard, like, I honestly haven't, I didn't, I had not heard about this particular, like this emergency I guess I, or maybe I just hadn't heard of it, like, as Title 42, like, this emergency law, essentially, that because of COVID, like, I guess, kind of, there are, because of COVID, they were able to put in place, because it kind of fell under that, you know, protecting public health law, essentially. Um, But I had seen on, um, on, like, on the website, on Associated Press, like, there were other articles that maybe or that talked about like people also knowing that this was going to end or these restrictions were going to be lifted. Um, like migrants essentially, or according to the, to the article, like essentially like trying, like, I guess like trying to get through before the restrictions were lifted because it, it, it is going to probably make it a lot harder Um to cross because you have to kind of jump through all of these hoops. Um, And then the, you know, like the stuff about the families crossing and how, you know, there's these curfews and that the head of the household has to wear like an ankle monitoring bracelet. Like that's, that's kind of ridiculous to me, but I mean, I guess like, I guess that's essentially kind of the point of that whole system is to prevent people from coming to the u.s or certain people i guess yeah say that part again because it (laughs) really is you know if you have the right complexion and class it's a whole different story i don't think that most people who haven't been in this situation they might not think of themselves as ever having to flee yeah where they are but it absolutely could happen to you you know like things can your circumstances can change on a dime and like suddenly you're in some class of people that's persecuted and you have to try to you know run for your life yeah and you know that's what these people are dealing with now you know not to mention what are the forces at play that made things so bad in their country yeah, a lot of it is because of the U.S., you know, and like yeah. meddling in their politics, sending guns over there and all of this stuff. For sure. I mean, it's usually like the U.S., like getting involved in things and like creating the problem to begin with. I do worry about like the hard rightward turn that this country is taking, even in like liberal cities or whatever quote unquote because like the way our mayor talks and stuff about migrants coming here is a mess yeah it's very I mean it's very scary like because you're right like it I feel like it is taking a turn for the worse and like it's moving so fast like the way I don't know it's just kind of deteriorating I mean, yeah, I mean, even though like here in New York, yes, it's you know allegedly a liberal. <laughs> place or the city is but yeah the mayor I mean it's just wild like some of the stuff that he's saying or uh, I don't know it's it's just a mess like the people that are being put into power 
they seem and they're I mean again like they seem to they don't have like they don't seem to have any sense to me (laughs) and they're just like they have all this power now to pass all of these laws and I don't know yeah like he did some um I almost talked about it for this week's show but the mayor of New York did something with like the right to shelter like we have a right to shelter law in New York City that has been on the books for decades and he signed like some kind of executive order to limit it or to restrict yeah, it. I think I saw that, yeah. And I believe it was specifically because of migrants. Mm-hmm. But you know, this ramping up of like this rhetoric of like this hatred and dehumanization for people who are visibly vulnerable, like with Jordan Neely and like propping up his murderer, like he's calling him a good Samaritan. Like, I don't know. It just reminded me like when he was going into the, I don't know, the courthouse or something, like one of the reporters were like, are you a hero? And, or something like that. And then I saw the headline of them saying that he's like a good Samaritan or describing him as a good Samaritan. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I do feel like if you're a non-white person and you're clearly vulnerable, like people can see that, okay, this is someone who is tired, exhausted, is, hasn't been in good condition or whatever. And instead of having you know, seeing them as like a fellow human being, like I think people are being encouraged to kind of unleash like the ugliest, most like inhumane parts of themselves. And it definitely happens to migrants all the time and yeah. people seeking asylum. We got this quote unquote Democrat in office, but he seems like Jim Crow Joe to me still with a lot of the stuff that he's out here doing. All right, so we are going to take another musical break. Uh, You are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And this song is Rhiannon by Fleetwood Mac. We'll be right back. Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at 
facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and now for our world news story a very sad and shocking one uh, this this information comes from the Associated Press and also from East African News. So I'm not going to read either of these articles in their entirety. I'm just going to read um, the main parts. But this first Associated uh, Press article's title is Kenya cult death toll hits 200 with more than 600 reported missing by Evelyn Musambi. Um, The death toll linked to a doomsday cult in Kenya hit 201 on Saturday after police exhumed 22 more bodies, most of them bearing signs of starvation, according to the Coast Regional Commissioner. The bodies are believed to be those of followers of a pastor based in coastal Kenya, Paul McKenzie. He's alleged to have ordered congregants to starve to death in order to meet Jesus. More than 600 people are still missing. Mackenzie, who was arrested last month, remains in custody. Police plan to charge him with terrorism-related offenses. Hundreds of bodies have been dug up from dozens of mass graves spread across his 800-acre property located in the coastal county of Kilifi. Mackenzie insists that he closed his church in 2019 and moved to his property in a forested area to farm. Autopsies conducted on more than 100 bodies last week showed the victims died of starvation, strangulation, suffocation, and injuries sustained from blunt objects. Local media outlets have been reporting, have been reporting cases of missing internal body parts. Um, internal organs, excuse me, quoting investigators in the case. Mackenzie, his wife, and 16 other suspects will appear in court at the end of the month. Coast Regional Commissioner Rhoda Oniansha on Saturday said the total number of those arrested stood at 26, with 610 people reported as missing by their families. Um, And this uh, other information comes from the website called The East African. Uh, There's no uh, author that is cited, but the title is Abusing Scripture, The Rise of Kenya's Christian Cults. And this came out at the end of April, at the end of last month. Uh, So these are just excerpts from that article. There are more than 4,000 churches registered in the East African country of Kenya of around 50 million people, according to government figures. Some preach the so-called prosperity gospel, urging members to donate heavily to church coffers in order to improve their own financial fortunes. Others operate with much darker consequences. All tend to be dominated by leaders who exercise virtually unlimited control over members' lives, twisting the Bible to promote their authority. Uh, So Paul McKenzie's full name is Paul McKenzie Nthenge, so N-T-H-E-N-G-E, and the uh, article refers to him as Nthenge. Uh, Nthenge's YouTube channel posted flashy videos about quote-unquote demonic practices 
such as wearing wigs and using mobile money to an audience of some 6,000 subscribers. A toxic cocktail of poverty, poor education, and easy access to entertaining online sermons have helped these cults to thrive in Kenya to deadly effect. In 2018, news emerged of a family that lost seven children within four years because their organization, Kanitha Watengai, or Church of God, did not believe in using hospitals and modern medicine. The same year, the Directorate of Criminal Investigations, or DCI, warned citizens to watch out for a cult called Young Blood Saints targeting university students. But Kenyan cults have managed to evade the law even after repeatedly attracting police attention. Nthenge, or Paul McKenzie himself, fell foul of the law in 2017 after he was accused of urging children not to attend school claiming the Bible did not recognize education. He was arrested again as recently as last month after two children starved to death in the custody of their parents. President William Ruto has pledged a crackdown on unacceptable religious movements, comparing their leaders to terrorists, a position echoed by Interior Minister Kithore Kindiki. The purported use of the Bible to kill people, to cause widespread massacre of innocent civilians cannot be tolerated, Kendiki said Tuesday during a visit to the site. Even clerics have flagged the need for regulation. These are people who have misinterpreted and are abusing scripture rather than using them the right way, um, some have said. We need to be able to vet the messages we are hearing from some preachers. Efforts at regulation will likely run into stiff resistance, however, with Callisto Odede, presiding bishop of the Pentecostal denomination Christ is the Answer Ministries, saying on Monday that independent churches have previously rejected suggestions on self-monitoring from the National Council of Churches of Kenya. The government has threatened to charge Nthenge with terrorism, but Stephen Akaranga, a professor of religion at the University of Nairobi, has expressed doubts about whether the gruesome saga would lead to a more robust approach to cults. So long as you are dancing and making noise, nobody cares. So yeah, this story I remember seeing on Instagram like weeks ago, the beginning and the number of people they had found dead was much lower at that point, but it was still shocking. Uh, so the fact that it's now gotten to the point where there's 600 people that are just missing and they've already found 200 dead is really. That's why well, is that like um, the, yeah, like the, when you mentioned like the bodies that were found like on his property, like how, like, was that the, the 200 or yeah, he's it's saying that he has 800 acres of land yeah. and was claiming that it's a farm or something, but they just keep finding these bodies. Yeah. I don't know. It's such a wild story. I mean, I don't know. And I feel like the point about, like, you know, it's a lot easier because of, you know, with social media and, like, YouTube and all of that, I know a lot of people tend to use those platforms now to kind of get people 
involved in these cults, like to get them, you know, like to kind of brainwash them into things because it's it's so much easier to access that. It's so much easier to access people now, I guess, if you are looking to do that. Yeah, it's and I easier. And I thought it was really telling how he had been exposed in the past for telling kids not to go to school. And that's really because it's not just like it's happening in Kenya, like even in the U.S., like a lot of these attacks on public education, that's what it's about. It's like they want people to be in a mindset where the only thing that they know is what you're telling them. Yeah. And they're not really able, to, they don't have the tools to like think critically the way they would if they did go to school or like if they were, they had other influences, like they want to be the only influence. Yeah, for sure. But damn, when it said the the article in the East African said 4,000, I don't, it didn't say 4,000 cults, but it's 4,000 registered churches. So that's yeah. a lot of churches but you know mm-hmm. how many of them are like some kind of offshoot cultish yeah. type organization mm-hmm. what do you think will happen like ultimately with this guy I don't know cause isn't I mean didn't it say I know he's in custody now right yeah, he's oh, arrested. Didn't they say that he like it's like he was a ar- in the past, like he was arrested, but then let go or something? Or yeah, how long has he been doing this? I think it said twenty nineteen. Oh, okay, something yeah. had happened where there were. Wait, he said that he closed the church in twenty nineteen, yeah, and he yeah, and that's when he was talking about like the farm, like that's. That's yeah, funny. right. And then in 2017, he was telling kids not to go to school. And then last month, there were two children, but they were with their parents and they starved to death. Yeah. So I don't, maybe it wasn't clear a connection between him. that and him. But, but now it's coming out this big thing. Like, I, this is. I don't even know what the reasoning could even be. Yeah. I mean, I feel like if it sounds like at least like they're the fact that they're thinking of charging him with like some sort of terrorism and things like that. Like, I, I feel like that's interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Cause hopefully there's some justice of some kind. Cause that's wild. Like, that many people, and then also just, like, you know, like, all those bodies, and then the way that they died, like, the suffocation, like, blunt being hit, blunt object trauma and all of that, like, I feel like that's, like, you're clearly, like, someone is actively killing, you know what I mean? You can't just yeah. blame on, like, oh, you know, they're, they took a vow of this or whatever because, you know, they believe in in this religion that sounds like these people were like attacked yeah i i don't know i mean i'll definitely try to keep up with what the further developments are but it's really it's heartbreaking because it's people of different ages children all of that and you know i feel terrible for the family members that are like you know their loved one just disappeared one day 
Like, I don't, who knows how he was recruiting these people. Well, I guess through social media and all this other stuff, but that's a hard thing. Like when people get caught up in something and it's tied up in religion, like it's hard sometimes to get through to them that it could be harmful. And I feel like it, yeah, it depends on kind of like where people are at in their life. Like it's, you know, they're more susceptible to that because, you know, like if they're just, I don't know, experiencing like other things and looking for a way, like looking for something to kind of hold on to and believe in, it's a lot easier to, and of course, like people who are leading these things are, they know like who to reach out to or you know like how to kind of get people to follow them which is unfortunate yeah for sure so very you know sad story but i'm hoping for some closure and that there's some of these other people doing similar stuff can get shut down over there because this is a like a huge tragedy um but you are going to finish the show with some good news in New York? Yes. Um, so, good good news. Um, this is, Well, yeah, good news, I guess. It is good news. <laughs> um, it's a story from the Gothamist uh, that was posted, I think published like earlier this morning, um, written by... Enrico Denard and George Bodarki. Um, and essentially it's just it's just an article kind of talking about New York City's community gardens. And they featured, I think, about four um community gardeners, like volunteers, who are kind of um doing some community building and you know, like sustainability work in their communities. Um, so I will, I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's it's very long. Um, so I'll talk about maybe two of the people that were featured um, and just kind of a little background on the community garden garden movement, which I didn't really know. This is the beginning, how it kind of started. Um, so the article says uh, the modern community garden movement in New York City began in the 1970s when a group of college students took back a vacant lot in Manhattan's Lower East Side. In 1973, artist and activist Liz Christie led a group of others in transforming, um, according to the article, a dangerous garbage-filled plot of land located on the northeast corner of Bowery and Houston Street into a lush green space. And that's now known as the Liz Christie Garden. Um, that same year, the group founded the Green Gorillas, and the organization went on to establish several other community gardens in New York City, and the city recognized the importance of their work and established the Green Thumb Program in 1978, which is uh, meant to help maintain community gardens. Um, so today, there are more than 550 community gardens um, across the city, Um But, you know, even though there is this Green Thumb program, which provides resources, um, there are a lot of advocates, like local advocates and community gardeners that are uh, working to kind of preserve and expand these green spaces. Um, So one volunteer featured in the story is Sonia Ferraro, who founded Paradise Community Garden in South Jamaica, Queens in 2020, just as the coronavirus pandemic was taking hold. 
Um, she said it was a ripe time to start a garden. The city was turned upside down. Quality food was definitely scarce and everybody was fearful. And when we found this space, we just saw a lot of opportunity to grow food and bring our friends and family here to grow with us. Um, Ferraro, Ferraro said her journey to cultivate a community garden began with doing research on available plots of land. Um, and she used, you know, like resources provided by the Green Thumb program. Uh, when she first saw the space, it was filled with trash and debris, um, but she saw a lot of potential in it. Um, and so uh, Ferraro is a Queens native, um, but she she comes from a farming family from the Caribbean island of Jamaica. She said her fa her childhood was filled with memories of visiting the farm as well as gardening with her parents in New York. Um, and this is a quote from her. We just found pleasure in watching a plant sprout, waiting for weeks, and then all of a sudden it bursts through the soil. Um, Ferraro said, Par Paradise Community Garden grows everything from potatoes to watermelon and plays an important role in educating the community about agriculture, food, and nutrition. From the time we started the garden, we knew that a lot of people weren't comfortable with the soil and just putting their hands in the dirt. And some people didn't understand where their food came from. So the garden also holds workshops on topics that have nothing to do with fruits and vegetables, um, but are meant to help low-income members of the community. So they have workshops like, um, like on how to repair your own front door. Um, so, you know, like kind of doing that yourself instead of hiring someone and maybe paying like a fortune to do that. Um, the other person that was featured, or one of the other people that were featured in the story um, is uh, Ina K. McPherson. Um, and she is a founder of Tranquility Farm, which is located in Bed-Stuy. Um, and for her, the community garden is a celebration of, uh, of the efforts of Black women in the neighborhood uh, McPherson, who is originally from Kingston, Jamaica, said she's one of four Black women who reclaimed vacant spaces in the community. With no money, we did it. Uh, she said the city's Department of Housing Preservation and Development owned, a, owned the lot on which Tranquility Farm sits. Um, that lot remained underutilized for years until she and her gardening colleagues worked with Green Thumb to gain access and utilize it. Um, so they grow a variety of vegetables, including African greens, and they have chickens for eggs. Um, after four years um, of developing that space, the city wanted the land back for housing development. Um, but, you know, they, I guess, fought against that and were successful. Um, and then McPherson said, we're just ordinary people. Our legacy will be that we worked hard. We created something that's tangible and that will go on and give hope to others. Um, and she said her goal is to ensure that the garden thrives long after she hangs up her pruning shares. Um, so that's essentially it. I forgot to mention that the title of the article on The Gothamist um, is Hands in the Dirt, Meet Some of NYC's Community Gardeners. I don't, I don't remember if I said the title. Um, but overall, I, th I thought it was good news just because it kind of is highlighting just some local folks that are doing work to build community and, you know, um, educate people on uh, where they where their food comes from, kind of growing their own food. Um, and also just creating like a more sustainable 
life and um, future, hopefully. So, yeah. Good for them. I mean, I, I might pop by and visit, especially the one in Bed-Stuy, now that I know about it. Yeah. All right. So we did a show. Um, thank you for listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, please stay tuned for more community-based Brooklyn radio. I also wanted to mention that this upcoming week, May 15th to May 21st, is a national week of action to keep masks in healthcare. Uh, this was initiated by COVID Advocacy Initiative um, Mandate Mass US and COVID Safe Campus in collaboration with multiple groups across the country. There's local, state, and national organizations leading different actions. Uh, so please visit the Linktree website so that you can join in this effort. Uh, the link is l-i-n-k-t-r dot e-e forward slash capital M, lowercase a, lowercase s, lowercase k, capital W, e-e-k-o-f, capital A, c-t-i-o-n. So that's link tree forward slash mass week of action um the pandemic is not over just because many people are over it uh so please join in the efforts to try to get this very bare minimum standard back that we should have masking in healthcare settings to protect everyone when we're at our most vulnerable uh, and for our last musical break this is a song by a wonderful tourist musician, Stevie Wonder, uh, born on May 13th. Uh, this song is Superwoman. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Mary wants to be a superwoman, but is that really in her head? But I just want to live each day the love of Did you?